Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Today's guest is Tracy Clark Flory. Tracy is a senior staff writer at Jezebel, whose work has also been featured in Cosmopolitan, Elle, Esquire, Marie Claire, and Salon, among others. Her book, Want Me, A Sex Writer's Journey into the Heart of Desire, is about unpacking the messages we receive from society about sex, intimacy, and pleasure. I think Tracy's memoir is a fierce and honest exploration of identity. And so much of Tracy's work is helping to broaden the conversation around sex, feminism, and our bodies. Today, we talk about the state of our current sex culture and the false narratives that have shifted sexual empowerment away from collective action and social justice. We also talk about why sex should be thought of in a broader structural context and how sharing experiences and stories rather than going at it alone can be deeply transformational. Let's get to my conversation with Tracy Clark Flory. I'm really excited to talk to you today. I, I think, you know, the tome that you've just come out with is really timely and it really explores a lot of the things that I'm really interested in, especially as a sexual and reproductive health educator and doula for so many years with Loom. I've really spent a lot of my professional and personal time thinking about just the sexual paradigm that we live inside of and really thinking about how misogyny and patriarchy inform that paradigm and really being excited by new 
pieces of literature, both in short form and long form, coming out, helping to kind of dismantle that framework, or at least ask us to look at it with a little bit more curiosity and to actually engage the frames that we typically don't. And so, you know, when I was, you know, moving through the book, you know, and started to unpack some of those messages, I was really thinking about, okay, what's what's going on for Tracy in this process? You know, as a sex writer who's published all over the place, you know, what really made you want to tell your story? Right. I felt I had to. I mean, I, I've wanted to write a version of this book for probably a decade, in part because honestly, I think that in the writing process, there is a, a figuring out that happens. Of course, I went into it with a certain idea of what my narrative was, but I wanted to sort of, as a writer, like writing has always been my way of figuring out myself, figuring out the world. And so to like really be able to sit down and look at that journey and make sense of it and to put it within that systemic framework that you're talking about, that was part of what appealed. And I think so much of what I talk about in the book, it's about my sort of embarking on this journey under the false illusion of of sexual empowerment and under this false illusion that I could sort of just set out and, you know, get what I wanted without a real appreciation for that systemic context. And then so writing the book for me was a way of of looking back at those experiences of my younger self and then putting it within a context of all of this feminist academic writing that I've since, you know, been lucky enough to to read. So some of it was processing those past experiences through that lens, that important lens. I think what you said about lucky enough to read in terms of the other pieces of information or pieces of literature or text that you accessed in order to kind of inform and support your own narrative. I really would love for you to just expand on that a little bit more because I think the lucky component and this idea of what is seen and what is visible to just the everyday cis woman and what is not, I think is really important to just like dig more into because, you know, what, what were you lucky to read? Like, what have you seen that maybe some people haven't? Yeah. I mean, so much of the luck really is having this job that, that allows me to do that kind of digging and that, that creates that space for reading through like, you know, feminist scholarly papers and, you know, diving deep on, you know, anthologies from the 80s, you know, in the midst of the sex wars and all of that to like dive deep into that feminist history. Because I think, you know, on a mainstream level, so much of what we see around feminism is this very, um, and feminist history is a very simplistic recounting that really reduces all sides and creates this sort of like binary, especially around sex. And, you know, I was sort of victim to that too, like even going to a women's college and, you know, taking women's studies courses, I think even in that context, I received a pretty like simplistic recounting of that history. And so it was really only in the context of this bizarre job (laughs) that I have, that I've been able to actually like ask those questions, really interrogate these things and, you know, move beyond the mainstream narrative around feminism and sex. And so, the luckiness is really so much of that is is 
the, the space, <laughs> the space to do it, you know, and the space, you know, a job that actually says this is important and this matters. Yeah, and thinking about space, you know, what do you think is the state of our current sex culture? How do you see the landscape looking right now? I mean, the thing to me that is most distressing is I think that, you know, we've seen the rise of a very commercialized sort of feminism over the last decade or so. And alongside that, I think we've seen this rise of this really like watered down individualistic notion of empowerment broadly, but also specifically relating to sex. So the idea of sexual empowerment as being something that one embarks on individually, that sexual empowerment is something that you pursue on your own. It's something that you achieve on your own. And that it's, you know, the notion of sexual empowerment has drifted away from its origins as, you know, a, a collective action and, you know, organized around social justice and has been much more about like self-help and personal improvement. And so to me, in the realm of sexuality, like that's one of the dominant themes that I see, or one of the dominant hurdles that I see right now, is that we've lost that sense of the systemic context and where we're telling these false stories about sort of what's achievable on an individual level. And, in, and that makes, I think, a lot of women think that there's something wrong with them because it's cast as, as personal improvement, self-help, as opposed to something that is so much bigger than that and that happens in a in a cultural context. Yeah. I think that really lands for me and this working hypothesis that I have that I think having orgasms are a privilege because in order to orgasm, you need to feel safe. And if we think about the systemic constructs that we're living inside of, like misogyny, like patriarchy, women at a baseline, regardless of their ethnicity or socioeconomic placing don't feel safe. You know, yeah. if it's late at night at the gas station, if I'm the only one there pumping gas, like I'm scared, you know, yeah. just baseline. You know, if I, you know, I'm traveling somewhere for the first time and I, you know, don't know anybody there, like there's all of these components that create a lack of safety that are very tangible. Yeah. And then also are invisible, but are structures that we live inside of. And so I think when we're exploring things like sex, our culture, as you've shared, has done a really good job of like dissolving the structures that all of this is happening inside of. And when you start to look at things from a little bit of a wider, more macro perspective, it really helps, I think, create more empathy and compassion for cis women anyway. Let's just kind of at least put a little marker there around why it might be hard to feel very sexual or to feel a lot of desire or on the other end of that to have a lot of like compulsivity or impulsivity around your sexual experience because it's all coming from a place of systemic trauma and lack of agency. You know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think part of what I was trying to address in the book with my my own individual experience was like that I'd bought into this false narrative that sort of 
you know, pleasure. It was all just right there, like pleasure and power. It was there and it was available. You just had to like work at it and sort of do your homework. And I think like that's a lot of what we hear now around orgasm, especially for, for cis women. It's like this like, idea that you just have to like study up and, and, you know, sort of like be a good sexual student. And like, I think there's, you know, plenty to be said about sexual education, obviously, and for people learning their own bodies and learning about pleasure and fantasy and all of that. But we think, I think we have to also hold like all of those constraining factors that like you can do all of your homework and you're still going to come up against those outside forces. Like you're saying, like fear is a huge one. Another one is like, you know, the sort of grasping for power and for women, I think, especially who are, you know, in heterosexual relationships who are sort of like, you know, interacting with men's power in the context of, of their sexual relationships, like they're not making choices freely. Like they're not like, <laughs> we're, we're always engaging with these reigning sexual scripts. And so, you know, you might be reacting against them or you might be following them, but they're always, those reigning cultural scripts are always there. And so those forces are at play. And so you don't, you know, I think you need to, to appreciate all of the ways in which we're coming up against those hurdles and to deny that those hurdles are there and to act as though, you know, empowerment is there as long as you just, you know, read the right books and take the right workshops is really false and I think potentially dangerous. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Let's talk about sexual scripts because that's something you just mentioned and it's definitely something that kind of comes across in the book. You know, a central question you pose in the book is if everything is a copy of a copy, if all of social life is a performance, you know, if if sexual scripts are adapted from cultural norms, then does authenticity even exist or matter. Can you speak a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the question of authenticity is such a tricky one and it's one that haunted me basically throughout the book and, you know, throughout my journey. I th- I think <laughs> the sort of pickle that I found myself in is that I don't believe that there is a pure pre-cultural self. I think we're all products of our culture, our upbringing, our society that we live within. And so, you know, especially within the realm of sexuality, like our fantasies are so often, they draw upon symbolism and meaning from that cultural context. And so to me, sexuality so often and fantasies, especially are kind of like dreams in that they, you know, 
can help us to sort of, you know, process things and, you know, can, you know, address power dynamics that are very real and, you know, troubling in the real world, but that we can find some, you know, sense of catharsis from addressing in our sexual lives. And so I went for a long time, I, I think I had this sense that I needed to kind of retrain my brain, that I needed to retrain my fantasies to make my fantasies come more into alignment with my feminist beliefs. And so this is like a kind of tension that has been there always in feminism, you know, in feminist debate, this idea of like, you know, should we expunge any sort of like, you know, power dynamics from our, our, you know, sexuality, because that's a reflection of the patriarchal culture in which we live. And to me, where I've arrived with that is basically just that, you know, I see our fantasies as, as being a really helpful tool for processing so much of that. And that, 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 that those real world power dynamics are going to be a part of my sexuality in the same way that, you know, I might like have dreams that involve power dynamics. And that's a a way of processing these things. And that for me, you know, there was no pre-cultural self that I, I felt I could meaningfully tap into, which isn't to say that you don't really look at your fantasies, look at your sexuality and, and look at all the ways that it is informed by the world in which you lived, but to allow yourself some space and to have some empathy around the fact that you're that you are trying to be a sexual person within this world in which we live. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is this idea of fantasy as process. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What do you mean by saying using using fantasy as as a place to kind of process your sexuality especially kind of in the construct of being in a monogamous relationship you know how how have you been able to kind of make that space or protect fantasy as a place for process right when i think like there is a really i'm glad that you highlighted that like the monogamous context because i think there was a shift in my sex life between when I was in my twenties and I was single and having casual sex where I was sort of playing with power in a way that was not negotiated and not, and not actually like safe. There wasn't a lot of communication and trust. And now the context of a committed partnership where it is truly playing with power because there is a conversation ahead of time. There is a mutual understanding and respect and safety that actually really holds space for that kind of exploration in terms of like the way that like the meaning behind fantasies i'm really fond of this idea that fantasies essentially allow us a sense of safety to express our desire and so oftentimes what fantasies mean on the surface like it on the surface it might seem to mean one thing and it might actually mean an entirely different thing for example a fantasy of submission might actually arise from a feeling of of having too much desire of being too much and so i think that's a very common one for women the you know we're supposed to be desired but not to desire you know therefore the the fantasy of submission if you are submitting to someone else's fantasies does that create a safe space for you to experience desire because your desire can't be too much if you're submitting to someone else you know and so there's a certain to me there's a certain magic in the way that our brains think up these, you know, amazing, fantastical scenarios to create safety for sexual exploration and pleasure. 
And so that's why I always come back to the dream analogy. There is so much meaning I think that we can find in these sexual scenarios that I think we often just don't, we don't take seriously. Let's talk about porn. You know, my understanding is that porn viewage went way up during the pandemic. And I'm curious if you feel like there's a correlation around that when it comes to cis women and, you know, how do you think just like sexual encounters, you know, sexual dynamics are going to shift in, you know, major metropoles around the world, especially from the perspective of how you were kind of experiencing being in cities and having sex mm-hmm. in your book and, you know, in a pre-pandemic world. Right. I mean, to like my experience of porn, you know, on the one hand, growing up basically with porn at my fingertips, growing up online, it definitely, it created this or provided an idealized sort of sexual image, like an image of what hot sex looked like that I then pursued and tried to recreate. Often, I wouldn't say to disastrous effect, but, you know, there was a a definite lack of pleasure in that recreation, right? On the other hand, my you know, sort of, I I set out as a young person watching porn, really hoping to sort of understand men's desire. My, My wish was to like become what men desired or at the very least understand what men desired because that felt like power to me. And in the process of that, trying to understand and watching porn as part of that, I actually stumbled across my own desire, you know, whoops, accident. Like I, you know, I, <laughs> here I am, um, ostensibly trying to understand men. And then I'm actually finding that, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm poking further on these porn sites and actually pursuing things that are of interest to me. And that had very little to do with men's desire. And so in that sense, porn very meaningfully co- connected to me, to my own desire, my own pleasure, my body, my own fantasies gave me this whole appreciation for the realm of fantasy that has been enormously valuable. And so I think <laughs> the possibilities of porn are many. You know, there is the the negative possibility of course, which is that porn is entertainment and when people are watching porn and believing that it is, you know, a sort of textbook or, you know, instruction manual for how to have good sex, that is going to be hugely problematic. And so for me one of the things that I think is really desperately needed is for there to be some literacy around fantasy because we don't we don't talk about fantasy in a nuanced way and so you know i think young people aren't taught how to read porn how to sort of understand what it means so you watch porn and you think oh this is this is what good sex is as opposed to appreciating you know the fantastical nature of sexual entertainment and sexual fantasy Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. 
But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. What were the things that you bumped into that you were like, oh, like I'm here researching to understand men and their desire, their arousal, but actually like, I like this. And I also like that. Like, I'm really curious because I feel like in the same vein of what you're saying around, we're not really taught like how to take in or consume porn. I feel like there is value in kind of openly highlighting or sharing more about like what we like in porn. So one of the things I think that was most startling to me was like, you know, part of research, researching men's desire, you know, I had this sense of like, oh, men, straight men, those, those perverts, I want to understand those perverts. And, you know, because I, there was a lot that I saw on like, you know, tube sites in my early twenties where I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. And, but, you know, as I, you know, navigated further, I found scenarios that were very much in contradiction with my feminist beliefs and that I found were incredibly arousing for me. And, you know, I, it, it, I sort of felt like, oh, I, you know, <laughs> I'd been looking at men as these perverts and I sort of got in touch with my own sort of capacity for perversion, if you will. So like scenarios, you know, that really played with power, for example, and particularly like, you know, <laughs> women's submission and men's dominance. And, you know, the contrast of like, around this time, I was working as a feminist blogger, and routinely railing against those kind of power imbalances and, and railing against abuses of power in the real world. But then that in the sexual sphere that I could be turned on by these, you know, play acted, pretend depictions of just those kinds of power imbalances and abuses of power, that there was an erotic charge in that sexual space around that kind of make-believe representation. Yeah, I really understand that. And I think that is, again, this piece around how important it is for us to really just decompartmentalize what fantasy is and, and what fantasy can fuel and how it can also, you know, create more capacity to manage the more challenging or negative effects of those power dynamics by seeing yes. it in a pleasurable lens that allows you to get a little bit closer. It's almost like exposure therapy, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but in this like reverse system. Right. And, you know, I just in terms of, you know, share for share here, I think for <laughs> me in terms of, you know, porn that I have found you know, really supportive over the years is I actually really like to watch porn of other women just solo masturbating, primarily because when I see other women have an orgasm, it's just more permission for me to have one. Mm. And especially when they're giving it to themselves, this kind of solo loop is like a very, it's very organizing and permissive. And it's mm. oftentimes, you know, when I would teach our sex class and any of our sex curriculum at Loom, 
for people who had not stepped into porn yet, oftentimes my first recommendation was just find masturbation content. That's really easy. The frame is limited. If you have, you know, a sexual trauma history, we're like tightening it up a little bit in terms Mm. of like what you're accessing so that it's not too activating. It just kind of gives you some modeling. Because I do think, again, one thing that we lack in our culture is available models for sex that are not overtly performative or overtly fantastical, just kind of like basic, like this is how you can touch yourself. And here's a couple of different types of bodies doing that and it's okay. So, and again, I didn't know when I stepped into, you know, watching porn, also someone who grew up with porn at their fingertips, you know, growing up that that would kind of end up being like a sweet spot for me. Mm. But I do think that again, just, being able to recognize that for myself, being able to put language around that and speak to it, I think is, you know, one way of kind of undoing a lot of the, as you kind of express the kind of negative, negative possibility or negative potential of consuming porn. Right. I love that. I mean, yeah, as you're talking, I'm really thinking like, you know, I'm talking about these like fantasies of my own that seemed like so, um, so incredibly taboo because they were in contradiction with my feminism seemingly. But, but really when you talk about a woman masturbating like that, oh my God, like what a, what a taboo that is a woman on her own giving herself pleasure for her own pleasure is incredibly taboo. And like, so fundamental to like the act of a woman masturbating, giving herself pleasure to engage with that image. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why I feel like conversations like this are so important because it's about different kinds of permission and different kinds of, you know, validation, all of which are kind of laddering up to the same need, which is a need to just feel free, you know, free enough to to play and not not constrained by what we're told, like, you should like this. Really, like, when I think about, like, going forward, like, I've, you know, I've talked about sort of the shift away from, like, the collective action and social justice towards individualism around feminism and sexual empowerment. Like, one of the most inspiring things that I read about was reading about the consciousness-raising circles, feminist consciousness-raising circles, which were really about talking about women's individual experiences. And one thing that feminist academics now are talking about in terms of what might be useful for young women in the realm of sex are intergenerational consciousness raising groups, essentially, where women just share their experiences with sex, share your experiences with fantasy, with porn, whatever the case may be. And importantly, not in a situation where it's the older women acting as though they have everything figured out, but that they are in this open sharing space of we're all women living in this world in which we live. And, and what is that experience like for you and sharing stories that there's something it's so simple, but it can be so hugely transformational. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. 
But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And thinking about intergenerational conversations, you know, in your book, you write about your mom's cancer diagnosis in such a beautiful and heartbreaking way. You know, I'm curious about your conversations with her about the body. You know, was there a lot of permission around that? Is that something that you have your own history with? Right. There was not a lot of conversation with my mom. And it's funny because, you know, I grew up in Berkeley. My parents were a couple of hippies. You know, ostensibly, it was a very sex positive household. Like the message was very much that sex was a a great and wonderful thing, but the details were not filled out. There was no conversation about the body, right? And so the, the other thing is that's really important is that my mom had her own sort of traumatic history around sex, which was that she got pregnant at the age of 18 and, you know, living in conservative Indiana. And due to a lot of, you know, social pressures, pressures from her dad was sent off to what they then called a camp for unwed mothers. And which was essentially the purpose of that was to take young women who were pregnant outside of marriage and send them away so as not to embarrass the family, (laughs) so as not to harm the family name. And they were told at that time, you know, go off to this camp you give your baby up for adoption and you'll move on with your life and it will be like it never happened. And that's not how it actually transpired for most of those women. It's not how it transpired for my mom. She was haunted by that every day of her life. And so, you know, that was something that she carried. There was a certain kind of violence, I think, that was associated with her sexuality, her very early experience of sexuality And that she felt like it was a sort of scarlet letter that followed her for the rest of her life. And I think that though I didn't, I didn't have many conversations with my mom about that, but I think that I absorbed plenty of that. You know, I think I, I understood on some level what she had experienced and, you know, the sort of poetic irony of it is that I then set out and sort of made the scarlet letter into my career by becoming a sex writer, where I was writing very publicly about my sex life. And then here, my mom, you know, who'd experienced such trauma around her sexuality and who had voiced feeling like she was unusual for a woman because of, because of having desire, that she's then watching her daughter go out into the world and be publicly sexual in this way. And she you know, she worried for me. It terrified her, you know, what the sort of consequences might be that I would experience. So, you know, that intergenerational, God, I mean, it's such a, it's so sad that there, you know, it's rare for there to be enough space for meaningful conversation around these things where, you know, I was so close with my mom in so many ways, but there wasn't the space for us to have the kind of conversations that we're having right now where, you know, you're really opening up and being honest about the nuances of your experience. I just want to offer, you know, as I hear you walk through all of that, how powerful it is. And as an outsider, 
looking in at what you shared and you know at your at your body of work i can't help but think that there is deep repair there that's going on that you've you know been able to co-create through telling your stories and also the co-creation piece also connecting to your mom being able to witness you do that even though the conversations might not have happened synchronously or even verbally there's to me that's a generational repair that you yeah. are doing this work when her beginning story or her origin story really was the antithesis of yeah. what you have manifested so right. i think that's really powerful yeah i mean right she was sent away right for essentially for her sexuality and then i'm like here i'm gonna post it on the internet like you know that and she said to me you know a, a few years before she died she said to me you're so much braver than i was and mm -hmm. there was fear there when she said that but i think that there was also you know a, a sense of sort of awe and progress that like that I was able to be braver than she was, you know, and I don't think it was a, a case of bravery, actually. You know, I think it was that there was more that was available to me a generation on. And thinking about generations and the people and the women that are going to read your book or already have, what's something you really want them to take away from it? The most important thing to me is really that to understand the shift that's happened where notions of sexual empowerment have shifted away from collective action, social justice towards the individual. And that there's, there's a lie basically at play there, that, you're a, that you are able to have everything you want in the sexual sphere if you just set your mind to it, read the right books, do the right workshops, et cetera. And that really denies the, the broader, you know, structural contact because i think anytime you deny that broader context and you deny the need for collective action which includes having conversations like this where you are you know in a collective way sharing experiences and stories rather than you know going it alone anytime you erase that context i think there's so much opportunity for women to feel that there's something wrong with themselves because if the narrative is you just need to you know be a better student go out there and get it and that's not working for you you know then what's wrong with me as opposed to saying what's wrong with the world that we live in and how are my choices constrained by the world in which we live so that's really not to abandon you know of course people are going to try to pursue pleasure and self-improvement but to do that within the appropriate context the broader context Thank you for joining my chat with Tracy Clark Flory. Her book, Want Me, is an essential read. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.